In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, and I'm... (laughs) Fucked it up. I'm out of practice. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Sarah Cliff and Dylan Scott in a noble reliance on the norms of American politics. Even Donald Trump is keeping the Thanksgiving to Christmas season a little bit sleepy, I would say, in in the news cycle. So we are are able to live up to our ideals and uh, take things back a little bit. Sarah and Dylan are working on a, a great project right now where they are reading all of the different Democratic Medicare for All plans, and they will explain them all to you in text form soon. But here in audio form, I, I had some some questions about this. I'm going to be this sort of straight man, the dope here. Um, so <laughs> Medicare, dope, Matt. So Medicare, it's like it's a thing. Old people get it. Some people are old. So Medicare for all. It sounds to me like we'll take Medicare, this successful program for old people, and we'll just let all. People have it, right? It's never, never so simple. So if you like Medicare, it's Medicare for all. Okay. So Dylan and I have spent a lot of time over the past few weeks um, reading through, I think it's a total of eight different plans to give all Americans access to public health insurance. So you're saying it's more complicated than that. Weird that, yes, (laughs) um, as as our president has said, who knew healthcare could be so complicated. And so we've looked at this universe of eight plans. And I think just to step back for a little bit, two things that are really startling to me. One, and we've talked about this a lot in the podcast, is that Democrats seem really set on doing health care, that the ACA was not enough for them, that they seem really set even after all the political rancor and like health care just like hasn't been a political winner for either party. I mean, I was talking to Senator Brian Schatz, who has one of these proposals, who was saying he sees the next two years as a time to kind of sort out the differences between these eight proposals, have hearings, call up experts, like figure out, okay, where do we stand on health care, but really engage in this debate. So so there's a desire to return to health care, and there's a desire to go much further than the Affordable Care Act. It's pretty stunning to me that if you look back in 2008, you didn't have like a single leading Democrat running on a Medicare for All platform. You know, John Edwards, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama had much more moderate plans. Now, as we go into 2020, it seems like any contender 
who's in this space is running on expanding public health insurance. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, you know, anyone, you Elizabeth Warren, anyone you look at has basically signed on. So we thought it'd be helpful to look at like, okay, what is the universe of ideas that Democrats are going to be drawing from? And I think they essentially fall into I, – I see two buckets and you might have more buckets, Dylan, that you could pick up. So one of them is kind of similar to the idea that you're mentioning, Matt, of giving everyone Medicare. You know, we have a plan in the in the Senate offered by Bernie Sanders. We have a plan in the House that's going to be taken over by Rep. Jayapal with um, Keith Ellison leaving office. And both of these plans, they give – public health insurance to all Americans, but it's something that looks very different than the current Medicare program, which we'll talk about a little bit more. And that's kind of the most extreme change. Then you have this other bucket of plans that lets people buy into public health insurance. And those are the ones Dylan has been looking at a little bit more than I have. And then you also have one think tank plan that creates a new government program entirely. Yeah. So actually, that's three buckets. But those are kind of the three things that are on the menu of options broadly that all these eight plans fall into, either move everyone to government insurance, let people buy government insurance, or create a new program that people can buy buy into? Yeah. Well, the, th- the third bucket, I guess, is there's a, a plan from the center-left think tank called the Urban Institute that's called Healthy America. And it's basically designed, you know, Medicare for all, the problem with it, as we'll get into, is that it sort of disrupts the entire healthcare system as it exists right now. Healthy America from the Urban Institute was basically designed to be as undisruptive as possible. And so what that plan does, it actually combines the Obamacare marketplaces with uh, the Medicaid population while also introducing a new public option plan. So it's sort of a a totally different spin off, a different way to expand health coverage. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of similarities between the Medicare for all plans and even the different Medicare buy-in plans. But the Urban Institute has kind of charted out this other way of expanding coverage by combining Obamacare and Medicaid that would cover a lot more people but would not achieve universal coverage in the same way that Medicare for all would. So let's let's define terms. Like, what does it mean to to buy in to a public program? Well, the details vary. So there there are basically three plans: one from Jeff Merkley and Chris Murphy in the Senate, another from Jan Schakowsky and Sheldon Whitehouse, um, and another from Michael Bennett and Ralph Higgins. And basically, the similar you know what they all share is that. Right now, the Obamacare marketplaces are are out there. They have a bunch of different private plans that people can choose from um, if they don't get insurance through their work. And what these Medicare buy-in plans would do is they would basically add another plan to the individual insurance markets that would be run by the government and would fall under the Medicare brand. Now, there are some important differences in terms of like if you get insurance through your work like we do, you know, would you be allowed to buy into that plan or not? But the, the long and short of it is on the... Obamacare marketplaces where people buy insurance right now, there would now be another option that's called Medicare that you could buy into. I think something important that the term you use I liked is Medicare brand because I think one of the things that's little understood about Medicare is it actually isn't that – comprehensive of coverage. So, and it's a very confusing universe of coverage. So there's actually three parts to Medicare. Parts A, B, and D. C was repealed or briefly existed and was repealed in the 1970s, I believe. Medicare Part A covers hospital services. Medicare Part B covers doctor. Medicare Part D covers drugs. And there's a lot of 
gaps in this coverage. There's nothing that covers dental or vision. There are um, deductibles for these programs. For Medicare Part D, the doctor visit ones, you pay a premium. I think it's about like 150-ish a month right now. And most Medicare enrollees, they actually buy supplemental coverage. So these policies called Medigap policies that cover the gaps in Medicare are pretty significant market. And I think one of the things all these plans have in common, even though they vary in a lot of ways, is they don't really see signing, you know, millions of Americans up for like Medicare's part A, B, and D with um, all the different sort of cost sharing. They see something called Medicare that looks a lot more like employer-sponsored insurance, where it's like not a separate plan for your doctor visits and your hospital visits and your drugs. It's one plan that kind of has the type of coverage you'd expect from an employer-sponsored plan. So I actually think this is really important, and, and this is a, a underplayed. I, I was being a little cheeky about it, right? But a big part of the political logic of Medicare for All, right? If I ask the Medicare for All proponent in the street, like, why is this a good idea that people should run on? Something that they will tend to say is that Medicare is very popular. People really like Medicare. So we're going to give Medicare to all. And I think if you look at the most, like, superficial polling that tends to show, like, broad popularity for this. That's what it's driven by, right? Like Medicare is a popular program. People like it. But it's important to understand when you get into the deeper politics, like when Donald Trump starts saying they want to repeal Medicare, they want to take your Medicare away. Or end Medicare as we know it. Like that's actually true, not in the way he is implying it. I mean, there there is an aspect of truth yes. to it, right? Like Medicare as it exists, right, is a program for elderly people. It's a single-payer structured program. It covers a lot of things. It's supplemented, though, for most people, for for middle class and affluent retirees, supplemented with private Medigap insurance. Mm -hmm. And for low-income enrollees, supplemented with Medicaid. With Medicaid, right. But I mean, but I think more importantly is what more affluent people are doing because I don't I mean that's like part of the, the politics of this, right? It's like who loses, right? And then also a lot of people use uh, Medicare Advantage mm-hmm. programs these days, right? Where the government it's like the opposite of a public option. Like the government program pays for you to get private insurance is – what's that? It's like 20, 25 percent. Like I think it's 30-something yeah. percent at this okay, point. So it's, pretty, like, it's significant. OK. So, so a large share of elderly people are using Medicare to purchase subsidized private insurance. And the canonical National Nurses Union, Bernie Sanders, House Progressive Caucus view is that the private insurance industry in the United States should be done away with. Right. So like people who are enjoying their Medicare Advantage plans, like they really are going to lose them. Well, that kind of depends on like which path you go down. So I think this is like an interesting difference between the Sanders and House Progressive right. Caucus plans and the Center for American Progress but, but, plan, but, which but, has but like I'm saying that the, kind of, the, the, the people who are most yes. jazzed up about the slogan Medicare for all are also most committed to like actually not having the program Medicare as it currently exists, exist anymore. Right. And they want to create a much more comprehensive, right? And like the vision animating 
Bernie Sanders and the nurses is that healthcare should be available for free at point of service, right? Yes. In essentially unlimited quantities. Yeah, and that's just that's like that's not what Medicare is, right? I mean, yeah, Medicare. I think in all of these cases is a misnomer, really. Like the the most ambitious single payer plans, yes, kind of create a, a whole new healthcare plan that basically covers every imaginable service. To your point, Matt, free at the point of sale, so to speak. And even the Medicare buy in plans that I've been looking at are actually really Obamacare plans. Like they cover the ten essential health benefits as dictated by the ACA. They base their cost sharing on the different metal tiers that Obamacare uses for its plans, but they just use Use the Medicare brand because it's so popular. So none of yeah, none of these plans as actually detailed are Medicare. But I think what Democrats have learned is that those three words are very very popular, right. and they're also beautiful. You know, it's beautiful how malleable that they are. It's interesting to me that in this constellation of many plans, like actually nobody is proposing that like actual Medicare should be made available to everybody. Right. Particularly given that actual Medicare is, in fact, popular. It is, is but it's also like a program that's kind of been like built together with all these blocks over time. And like if you were starting from scratch, like I see, you know, for example, they started with like hospital and doctor services in the 1990s or no, early 2000s. They add on drug services and kind of at the point where we're at now, you know, back in the 1960s when Medicare and Medicaid were being created, prescription drugs just weren't as expensive as they are right now. And at the time, it felt okay to make a plan that didn't cover prescription drugs. Now with, you know, you're getting million-dollar drugs coming out, a lot of Americans are struggling with drug costs. It just doesn't seem like it would make sense to create a plan that doesn't cover those things. But I think, I mean, one of the interesting things to watch in this debate is you have like, let's say the Sanders plan, for example, which offers robust coverage of not just the benefits required under Obamacare, but also coverage for dental, coverage for vision, all of this at no cost to the enrollee. Whether in the kind of debate and drafting process, if that starts looking more like traditional Medicare because benefits get paired back or there's some kind of cost sharing that gets introduced because, you know, the the reason Medicare doesn't have such a robust benefit package is that is expensive. So you have to raise revenue to do that. And I think that's one of the things that'll be interesting to see is whether the Sanders plan like moves more in the direction of traditional Medicare because traditional Medicare is cheaper for the government to provide than like Sanders version of Medicare. Well, and I think Particularly the cost sharing is interesting, right? I mean, because the dental, it's sort of easy enough to see, like, you push for that because you believe in it, you bargain it away to keep the price tag down. Lots of countries just sort of vary in yeah. their, their coverage of that kind of thing. But the, but the cost sharing part seems to be a significant conceptual and philosophical mm-hmm. disagreement. Right. That like it's not just about saving money. Right. Like I think there's like a real view among a lot of people in the health policy community that it is important outside of a handful of essential benefits to have cost sharing to like reduce system utilization. Right. Unnecessary care and that kind of thing. And then there's like another view that like – the provision of health care should be decommodified, right? Like we don't charge $10 to like go to second grade and then say, well, look, people can afford the $10, right? It's like school is free. Yeah, right? and this like is, it's, a, it's a point of principle. 
this is a place where you see a lot of the plans split and you see a lot of international examples split. So I think actually this idea of no cost sharing, which means, you know, when you go to the doctor, there's no fee at the point of service, no coinsurance, no co-pays. It's actually kind of rare among single-payer countries. Um, it's how Canada structures their system. And, you know, when I've talked to Senator Sanders about this, he's really inspired by the Canadian model. And it's interesting because, you know, he's someone who's railing against the millionaires and the billionaires, but he doesn't even think those people should pay a fee when they go to the doctor. His argument is really one that's rooted in inequality that everyone should have free access to our health care system. Money just shouldn't be a factor, you know, partially on the moral grounds of equality, partially on just administrative simplicity. If you don't have to collect, you know, if you have kind of um, income-tethered co-payments, then that's a lot of administrative work, you know, to figure out who has a co-payment, who doesn't. So you get rid of that. Most European countries, though, they do charge fees at the point of service. They're not high. You know, sometimes they are as low as 10 bucks, and and often low-income residents are excluded from them. But that's a real point of difference, actually. I think a philosophical point of difference between the Sanders and House Progressive Caucus plans and the buy-in plans, which I think a lot of those kind of keep the structure of employer-sponsored insurance, um, including like the Medicaid buy-in, which is another one we haven't talked about, but similar to the Medicare buy-in, lets people pay for a spot in the Medicaid program. It kind of is okay with keeping those fees at point of service. And I think that's a big both logistical and philosophical difference that exists in how Democrats think about what they want our future healthcare system to look like. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth recognizing that all of these plans seem to agree that people are paying too much money out of pocket right now. So, mm-hmm. like with the Medicare buy-in plans, you know, under Obamacare, the lowest package that you know benefits package that you could buy covers sixty percent of costs. But the Medicare buy-in plans are all pegged to either plans that cover seventy percent of costs, or in the case of the Merkley Murphy bill, it actually covers. 80% of costs. So these would be more robust insurance packages than a lot of people buy on like the ACA marketplaces right now. But yes, they do still But at the same time, 30% can be, yeah, like that's a huge difference a with the Sanders plan, which says 0% of right. costs. And, you know, I don't know the answer to how much of this is sort of pragmatism versus philosophy, because I do think, you know, one of the selling points of the Medicare buy-in plans is this isn't going to require a lot of new net revenue because we are going to charge people premiums and we're going to try to, as much as possible, will have the people who are buying into the program cover the costs of the program, whether through premiums or cost sharing. I think Democrats are kind of fixated on, you know, what's the actual universe of the possible. And so I think that one of the big selling points there, yes, is this that this doesn't require big tax revenue increases and and isn't going to dramatically disrupt the insurance market for people who get it through work. And so I don't know how much that's a philosophical thing versus just recognizing some of the realities of the system right now. But I think we should distinguish like two two axes of difference here, right, that that keep the sort of total price tab down. One is like buy-in versus taxpayer financing, right? Because like one dialogue you have, we had this on the site, it happened a lot over the summer around the Sanders plan is Bernie Sanders is going to give free health care to everybody. And then conservative says, well, that sounds great, but it costs $16 trillion. And then the proponent says, yeah, but total U.S. health expenditures are $17 trillion. So actually this is saving money. So then somebody else says like, ha, 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 you say you're saving money, but wait until you have a 25% value-added tax and then we'll see. And then we have a kind of standoff, right, in which the Bernie camp is saying, which is true, that like you could – 
write a financing mechanism for this plan that would make the aggregate costs be lower. And then the conservatives are saying with like, you know, guns at the ready, <laughs> like, well, write me the plan and then I will identify all the people who are worse off right. under this financing plan and I'll get them to kill it. And then the people in the Sanders camp are like, well, we'll see. Right. Right. And we we don't actually write it out. So one potential solution to that is to just like shrink it so that the number goes down, right? right. So it's like we're not going to cover dental after all. We're going to have a $15 copayment, you, you know, so you, you bring it down. So that's one thing, right? It's like the coverage could be just less expansive. But the other is instead of saying, well, we're going to have this huge tax hike, but the tax hike's okay because right now you're paying all these premiums, is you could just redirect the money, mm-hmm. right? Like that's like – that's the buy-in idea. Exactly. Like you could do like Bernie care but as a buy-in, at least in principle. Yes. I mean that's really similar to the buy-in options. Right. That yeah. I mean they are, the, the, the ones that exist are much less robust than, than the single-payer plan. But you could imagine – Right. A buy-in option of, of Bernie's plan right. for and sure. So that's just to say like, look, we are going to put on the table the price controls, administrative savings. And like if you want it, Mr. Person who is already paying a lot for health insurance, like you can just get this instead. Yeah. And I think – I mean it gets to a question of is the point of this expansion of public health insurance a significant redistribution of wealth? And like some people think yes and some people think no. And like what do you think – about that question really drives what kind of healthcare system you're going to structure. Like, no one has done a great job writing out the financing of this yet. That's one place where, you know, both from the House Progressive Caucus and from Sanders' office, you have a menu of options for financing. But because we don't actually fully know at this point how much um, either of these plans would cost, we don't even know what sort of revenue would be needed, except we just know it would be a lot. But when you look at the options that, you know, Senator Sanders and the House Progressive Caucus have lined out for financing, they're pretty similar in that they basically target the wealthiest Americans, which would come as no surprise. And, you know, both of those groups of people are okay saying, you know, wealthier Americans, they are going to pay more into the system than what they get out of it because they are going to be more significantly subsidizing low-income Americans. The buy-in plans don't really require that cross-subsidization. It's more of like an individual, you know, when I look at, you know, I looked at Brian Schatz's um, Medicaid buy-in plan, for example, the idea there is like if I, Sarah Cliff, wanted to buy into Medicaid, they would give me a premium that would be expected to cover, you know, my costs, you know, generally, and, and I would pay that premium and I'd be paying my share into the Medicaid program and the Medicaid program would be negotiating prices for me and, you know, providing that kind of insurance coverage if I did have some kind of catastrophic, unexpected event. But so the, those are two different visions of, you know, what role you think healthcare plays in um, in equity and equality in the United States that you see emerging from these different plans. Okay, let, let's take a break. And then, yeah, I, I want to talk about that, that distributional angle. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. 
Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So I think that's an important point Sarah closed on because what all these different proposals have in common, right, is the idea that the public sector can drive costs down, essentially. And it already does in in Medicare and Medicaid by sort of using large-scale buying power, right? And, you know, this is something that's very important to the, the discourse around the Sanders plan, right, is that – by implementing Medicare-type cost controls, you bring system-wide costs down even though you're creating this much more expansive program. And I think it's important for people to understand that conceptually, this is like almost an unrelated topic, right? Like if you think that the kind of price controls that are envisioned in Sanders' proposal are viable, which I, I mean I think they might be. You could just do that, right? Like you could raise no taxes, provide no health care to anybody, just put price controls on. All payer rate setting. And and <laughs> things would become cheaper, right? And presumably the uninsurance rate would decline and people's premiums would go down. I mean we'd have to see how it shakes out. Well, so that's actually – so that's kind of similar to um, the plan that the Center for American Progress has offered, which they call Medicare Extra for All. Right. Which, you know, essentially going back a little bit to this Medicare Advantage discussion we were having earlier, like right now we have a public plan that also has these tightly regulated private competitors. The Center for American Progress plan actually envisions, you know, that sort of scheme where the government would do price setting, the government would tightly regulate which benefits are covered, but you'd still have private insurers who are allowed to sell and compete against the public plan, which is kind of another vision that looks like kind of similar to like a German or a Swiss health insurance plan. Or to like the more liberal versions of Obamacare, right? I mean, something I was reminded of during the like Nancy Pelosi reascension to the speakership is that you know, the House Democrats, at a time when, like, Medicare for all as a slogan was not really gaining steam and when single payer was not on the table as a as a uh, policy idea, they pushed a version of the Affordable Care Act that from 50,000 feet up was the same, like the regulated subsidized marketplaces, private, blah, 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 blah. But in the details was actually quite different, right, and, like, had this public option. And Capstone seemed to me to be more that, 
right? It was like the left wing of the ACA debate sort of coming back. I feel like what what's happening here is people see two problems. One is that we still have, you know, 30 million people who are uninsured and that's sort of like the moral urgency yeah, here. Yeah, what is the problem? And the other piece of it is that people are paying too much money out of their pocket for health, you know, for their health care. And so like those are problems we know how to solve by just spending more money. Like the federal like that's right. kind of what Obamacare did. We just started spending a lot more money on, you know, individual insurance subsidies and Medicaid and we covered a lot more people and, and there was less uh, underinsurance and uninsurance. And so that's sort of the real sort of tactile problem that all of these plans have been designed to solve, whereas the you're talking about kind of like the back end of it, sort of this this more like systematic system of hospital prices and prescription drug prices and what have you that like is invisible to a lot of people. And so I just don't think these plans have been necessarily designed like with that in mind so much. You know what I mean? I kind of wonder like like what plan are we solving here, right? Like my my very cynical view of this, which I don't know if it's right, but it's like the problem to be solved is that because Hillary Clinton did not become president, a fear emerged in Democratic Party circles that Bernie Sanders would become the nominee in 2020 and that the problem these competing plans are designed to solve is the problem of beating Bernie Sanders in a primary election. But I think, I mean, there is also an actual problem they are solving. I think you see a lot of Democrats who feel like they see a lot of people who are frustrated with the health care system, that the ACA did not go as far as they wanted it to because they were trying to compromise. And now it's like, well, well, like, fuck it. Like, who are we compromising with at this point? And this is kind of like where we want to take things that, that I think one of the – you would not see – you would not see the interest in like going back to healthcare and expanding public insurance if you didn't see a lot of people really, really frustrated and feeling like the ACA reforms didn't fix their problems. I think one key thing that gets that I I've started thinking is playing a key role in all this is the rise of deductibles, which have just like hugely skyrocketed over the past decade, which mean that Americans are a lot more exposed to the actual cost of their healthcare. And I think that's kind of an undernoticed factor in all this that, you know, a lot of people are paying the the prices out of pocket and are thinking like, but that holy was, shit, healthcare is really expensive. But that was one of the policy goals that the Obamacare people had. What was one of the policy goals? Was to expose patients more to the actual cost. Yeah, and I think that's like very unpopular. Like it is a policy goal right. of it, but it was a very unpopular policy goal. No, no, I mean, I, I, I leaving a lot of people frustrated. I, I, I agree. I mean, it, it was, but like, really, right? Like, before the whole want to beat Bernie Sanders in an election problem arose for the Democratic Party, I think that they were fairly comfortable with the high deductibles situation, that that was a an intended result, right? Like they wanted to avoid like catastrophic things, but like there was all this bending the cost curve stuff. There was this series of proposals, right? I mean, like anything, Barack Obama didn't get everything he wanted done in Congress. He had this like raft of stuff. Hillary Clinton picked it up. They were going to tweak the this and that formula. They were going to increase the match on hoo-ha. Um, there was a belief that the individual mandate had not been structured quite stringently enough. We had had talked about, you know, whether they were being a little too politically cowardly in implementing the open enrollment roles. But, like, there was a vision, right? And, like, the people behind that 
vision. The people both behind the ACA and the people behind the like, here's how we want to improve the ACA and the people who were saying in the early days of the 2016 primary, like, let's not go back to the drawing board with this. Like, let's improve it. Like, they didn't all die in a plague. Um, And in fact, they're writing these plans. You know, I mean, I think listeners are aware that I am not personally like a hardcore member of the Bernie cult. And yet... I grow more sympathetic as I watch this kind of playing out because it's like, is the view that Bernie was right or that he's wrong? Yeah. I mean, I do think that he tapped into something. And obviously, I'm not saying he his, you know, his primary success was only a result of embracing Medicare for all. But I do think that was a really animating issue for him. And it probably showed – his success probably showed a lot of the – you know, establishment think tank types around here, how animating an issue healthcare could be. And we just saw that in the midterm elections this last year, too. And so I think there's been I, – I was thinking listening to you guys go back and forth that sort of like can it not be both? That right. sort of there is this sort of self-evident – if not crisis, then serious problem that a lot of people are running into. You know, deductibles are not just high in the Obamacare plans. They're going up for people who have employer-based insurance too. So people sure do are. feel a a sort of pinch when it comes to health care. And at the same time, I do think we're seeing a sort of reaction of, well, you know, Bernie Sanders has sort of set out this, you know, he's planted his flag and he has identified what his health care vision would be. And we can either keep talking about Obamacare and how we're going to fix it, or we can at least attempt to match him and his ambition. And right. so I think I see both things happening at once. Right. I mean, there's an element of like, there's there's both of this. But I mean, there's a question of like, are people insufficiently subsidized in their health insurance or aren't they? Yeah. And I feel like the the establishment has like taken a pirouette on this subject without really, at least to me, like explaining their their reasoning. And then they seem gun-shy about it when it comes down to like – like they're nervous about like robust Medicare for all because it involves big tax increases. But like you could scale it back a little bit. But like that's the basic idea, right? Like if you want people to get health insurance and for the health insurance to be cheap for everyone, that's like you have a lot of tax increases. Or if you have the old view that – Again, I never heard it like officially recounted between the time when like Barack Obama was for bending the cost curve and when Barack Obama was listing Medicare for all as an exciting new policy idea. Mm-hmm. Like the view was that healthcare is excessively subsidized. Right. I guess I'm curious what you think, Sarah, because you've done a lot of reporting on the like healthcare as a human right question. And like I do think that it like I mean, Matt, you alluded to it before, but I feel like part of this is like is healthcare just a fundamentally different thing than a lot of other commodities? Or is it more akin to like food and housing, I guess, or like even more important maybe than those things? I don't know. But that seems, I think, it's sort of like we're almost talking about healthcare as sort of like still sort of a, a business in a private market where, you know, you have prices and costs that people have to pay. Whereas I think what's animated a lot of people is this idea that healthcare is something else or that the government should be a lot more involved even than it is now in providing it to people. Yeah, I mean, I think going to your point, I know if our absent host Ezra Klein was here, the thing he would 
say at this point is that this kind of points to this tension and confusion that often exists in our healthcare debate around like what cost control actually means. For the government, controlling costs means the government spending less money. So we have high deductibles. We have mechanisms to try and encourage you to think twice about going to the doctor, to encourage you to like not be a wasteful spender, except those are exactly the things that, you know, as a patient, I feel like are not controlling my costs, that they're driving my costs up hugely because all of a sudden there's this deductible and it's really expensive for me to go to the doctor or for me to get my prescription drugs. And in a weird way, this actually reminds me of some of the stuff we saw in the Republican repeal debate where we constantly saw Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell being like, the deductibles in Obamacare are too high. The deductibles are bad. And then they would introduce plans that made the deductibles way, way higher because, you know, we needed to do cost control and, like, we needed to save on money. And a lot of, you know, people would see this and be outraged and say, you know, well, that's going to cost me a lot of money for the government to save money. And I think this is a constant, you know, point of tension in American health policy where, you know, what you mean by controlling cost, it depends so much on where you sit. And these two things are intention. You know, controlling a patient's individual costs means – spending more on part of the government, controlling government spending on health care means the patient spending more. And, you know, at the end of the day, like those high deductibles, they are great for controlling costs. They're really unpopular with people. And I think Democrats are confronting this part of the Affordable Care Act that people just don't like it when you do cost control. Right. But I mean, people also don't like it when they have to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yes, I think all of us like it, like when we can go to whatever doctor we like for what no cost and like not pay higher taxes. But that's a really difficult healthcare system to build. Well, except it seems like the system people really, really, really want is a system in which a very opaque set of background tax policies encourage employers to give you very generous insurance plans (laughs) through a lot of implicit subsidies and kind of hidden – Hidden hands, right? I mean, or alternatively, I mean, I don't know the math on this. Like, if it really is true that you can just give everybody free health insurance with a $16 trillion tax increase, but the tax increase will, like, just come from billionaires, I mean, that does sound pretty good. I think people would like that. If you're yeah. not a billionaire. <laughs> if you're not a billionaire. With a lot of money to Billionaires spend lobbying. Billionaires have I mean, a little it, bit of influence. Well, maybe, but maybe they don't. I mean, it's just – it's weird because I think there's there's tremendous fear of the tax implications of the Sanders – plan, but also there is no written down, like, here's what we're actually proposing. So the whole thing seems a little, it's like a little frozen. Yeah. On it that is. Level. Well, this yeah. is where I wonder if Democrats will find the buy-in plans to be sort of the elegant solution to a lot of this, because it you can say you're offering Medicare for all because everybody or a lot of people would be able to buy into it, but it just does not require the same kind of scary tax hikes because you're really yeah. repurposing money or asking people to pay. But this feels their like the biggest unknown at this point in the debate is like how much does it cost and what sort of tax increases does it require? And we just don't have, you know, CBO has like not scored these plans. I, I think they need to be like fleshed out a little bit more. And so until we have that information, like a lot of this debate feels kind of theoretical in terms of understanding, you know, like what taxes would be required and like who would pay those taxes. The other side of this, so you you both have that side and the other key financing part that we don't fully have fleshed out yet is like how much do doctors and hospitals get paid? Because that's like the other lever you can pull, right? right? You can increase taxes. You can also tamp down on, you know, what we're 
paying for health care. We have really, really high prices in the United States, higher than any of our peer countries. But a lot of, you know, industry depends on those high prices. And you can bet there's a very strong lobby to um, prevent those prices from going down. Right now, Medicare is kind of middle of the pack in terms of the prices that it pays. It pays less than private insurance. It pays more than Medicaid. And so you see kind of some variation between these different plans on like where they would set prices, you know, some using Medicare payment rates, some using some of the Medicaid payment rates, some using like 125 percent of Medicare. So that that's the other lever that's going on that has a lot of complicated politics around it. But if you want to tamp down on the tax increases, the way you do that is by tamping down on prices. But then you have like a, you know, that's one fifth of the economy. And there's so much going on there that's going to make that part a big challenge. Well, and this is where, to put my cynics hat on, but point it the other direction, I get frustrated that like, I feel like we're three years into Bernie Sanders making a serious quest to become president of the United States. And it's clear at this point that like the function of his Medicare for all plan is to advance that goal. It's not just that they haven't yet. It's that they are like willfully not answering these questions. And the Bernie verse has developed a set of very um, effective, I think, political and rhetorical strategies for the purposes of winning an argument that plays out in front of a left-wing audience, right? But like that are not addressing the the goal. Like if you want not just for Bernie Sanders to become president in January of 2021, but if you want a bill along these lines to pass, you can't start in February of 2021 like doing the math on how low can you cut hospital reimbursement rates before rural hospitals close. Now, it's obvious you can cut it some. Like there is definitely like pricing power in the system. It's also obvious you can't cut it 95 percent. Right. So it's like, how much can you cut it? Like, I don't know and like will not venture an opinion on this. But like you would have to find out. Yeah. Right. Well, like, this- and like, frankly, like in Vermont, you could ask people like this is not a state that is like unfamiliar with the problem of providing healthcare facilities in low population density areas. Like you could start asking these questions and trying to present a well worked out scheme or you could try to preserve your set of talking points where like now if I, you know, Senator Chump say, oh, Bernie, how are you going to pay for that? Then he comes back with like, well, why did you vote for this deficit financed increase in military spending? And it's like, boom, you lost three votes in Iowa right there. And like, it's great. That's a great set of arguments. Like if we can afford this, we can afford that. If we could bail out Wall Street, we can get people's health care. And like, good for you, right? But it's like the way – legislative works is you do at some point have to start answering these questions. Not like we, quote unquote, could pay for this, but like here is actually what the proposal to do it is. And like they could they could go take a week-long retreat and try to work this out. And yeah. like they're just not. I feel like they haven't made the transition for so long. They were just fighting to get a seat at the table and for the idea of Medicare for all, single payer to even be taken seriously. And now I do think they've accomplished that. Like that right. Overton mm-hmm. window has shifted, but they have not now moved on to your point, Matt, of the to the actual point of. But I think out like that's details. kind of where we're like that's why we're writing this piece right now, and like sure. that's like yes. where the debate. Is, is I think that is like an important, you know, when I talk to Democrats, they foresee, especially using their new power in the House, to hold hearings on like these issues and to actually 
talk this through. And I think then we'll get like a sense of like how serious are they about moving forward on this? Because eventually at the end of the day, like if you want to pass something, you're going to have to figure, you're going to have to write the bill that says like, okay, here's how the taxes change and here's how the provider reimbursement rates change. And that becomes unavoidable at some point. And, you know, when I've been talking to legislators and Hill staff for this piece, they kind of see the next two years as the time to like work on those questions. Will it happen? I don't know. Like they're super hard questions and they lead to like the most unpopular parts of these proposals kind of being fleshed out and, you know, laid on the table. But I think if they if they do follow through on kind of how they see the next two years in healthcare, like those are the types of questions that are going to be debated in the run up to 2020. I think the other thing we're going to start seeing is, you know, this almost like policy primary going on as we start seeing candidates throw their hat in the ring to run for president, which could be soon. Like I was looking back, President Obama originally declared in um, in February 2007, so really, really early. So we are likely about to start to see candidates declaring their candidacy for presidency, likely starting to roll out their own policies, you know, to make their mark on um, in the healthcare space. So I think that's another place, aside from the Hill, is also in the presidential election that we're going to see more of this. I think we'll see if, like, this is serious, right? Because, like, if you want to actually do this, then you need to answer these really hard questions. So to be determined. All right. (laughs) Let's take a break and then talk about our white paper. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. We have today Vanished Classmates, the Effect of Local Immigration Enforcement on Student Enrollment. So this is a paper. It's by Thomas D. and Mark Murphy, and it's looking at a program that I, I think is not that well known in the sort of policy debate. But Immigration and Customs Enforcement has the ability to form partnerships with local law enforcement organizations where local law enforcement normally does not enforce immigration law, traditionally has not enforced immigration law. But post 9-11 – in a a sop that the the Bush administration generally dovish on immigration through to the immigration hawks was sort of creating these programs. You can think of it, it it's sort of like the reverse of declaring yourself a sanctuary city, right? It's like you're now like an ICE partner city. And these proliferated under the Bush administration. Obama kind of slowed the creation of new partnerships, but, you know, left the program intact. And so this is a paper looking at, well, what happens when these partnerships are formed? And they find 
a strikingly large effect on school enrollment. Local ICE partnerships reduced the number of Hispanic students enrolled in public schools in the district by nearly 10% within two years. And there's no displacement of non-Hispanic students. ICE partnerships don't reduce pupil-student ratios or the percentage of students eligible for national school lunch program. The effect is concentrated in elementary school students. So evidently, these partnerships, they, I guess you would call it succeed in creating a climate that is um, fearful for immigrant families who appear to be responding by pulling their children out of public schools. And what struck me when I read it at first, I was like, oh, my God, Trump. <laughs> and then I, like, read it more closely. <laughs> and this uh, – the program continues under Trump and I believe has been ramped up to some extent. But the data being studied uh, goes from 2000 through 2012. Uh, so this is, like, I think the kind of thing that, you know, good liberals and, and resistance folks everywhere would be freaking out about had it happened under Trump. But it was actually a Bush and then – Obama initiative. And it, I don't know, it seems kind of monstrous to me. I think children should go to school. Yeah. I mean, my takeaway was, especially paired with another study that that came out recently, is sort of the cultural impact or sort of just the environment that is created by these policies, I think, does have a pretty meaningful effect on people's behavior. And so like what we saw uh, with the ICE partnerships is that, you know, it was elementary school students who in a lot of cases might be, you know, you might have the students are U.S. citizens, but their parents might be undocumented. And so that even though, you know, the, the student isn't technically at any risk by attending the school, they have every right to be there, the parents are still much more mindful of their own immigration status and that leads them to displace themselves and their families. And I think what's linked to that is that, you know, with elementary school students, it's probably people who have been here for a little less time, who are less settled, who are less established. And so they are much more responsive to a sudden increase in enforcement. And so, like, I think those are the sort of things that do carry forward and that we've seen, you know, I wrote about uh, the other day, there was a there was a study that came out about food stamp enrollment, and what we saw uh, in the first six months of 2008 is that food stamp enrollment among immigrant families who had been in the country for less than five years dropped by nearly 10 percent. And they also had some corresponding data that showed that the need hadn't gone away; that there was still the same amount of food insecurity among those families, but they had dropped off of SNAP. And the obvious explanation seemed to be that there was just sort of this climate of anti-migrant sentiment, even if there hadn't been any direct changes to food stamps, people were still fearful because they, you know, they heard what was on the news. Maybe, you know, word of mouth gets around when somebody gets picked up by one of these ICE partnerships or what have you. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, I think the important thing for people to understand is that it's it's not even necessarily that, you know, these ICE partnerships were plucking the students' parents out, you know, and putting them in jail. It's just the climate that's created does affect people's behavior and they respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I, f- I found this paper and also the study you wrote up, Dylan, kind of a helpful reminder of how much tone matters in policy, that it's not just the policy changes you're making, but it's also, like, how you are talking about them and, like, how you are communicating them that is really going to change behavior. And I think, like, the magnitude of the change in this really surprised me. You know, yes. I, like, we're talking about, like, a 10% decline. And how many students is it that— um, It's 300,000. 300,000. Like, that is a huge number of people. The thing, like, this kind of shook up for me is, like, I thought tone matters a little bit. But, like, 
it matters a lot. Like we're talking about a quarter million kids who are not going to school anymore, not because some policy said they couldn't go to school, but because the climate changed in the areas where they live. So so the magnitude of the change just really jumped out at me in this particular paper in suggesting, you know, like the really huge and I mean the huge consequence we didn't even know about at the time. Like one of the things that's almost like a little frustrating about this paper is like we're looking back at things that happened. You know, the kids who pulled out of elementary school, they're in their mid twenties. Like the kids right. at the start of this study, like as someone who was twelve in um in two thousand is a 30-year-old at this point. So we're looking back at these things that happened a while ago that had probably had really significant impacts for a lot of the individual stories in that 300,000. But it seems like it was really, really hard to get this data. Like if you read through the data section of this paper, there were multiple FOIA requests to find out where these partnerships were. Then they had to cross-pair that with like school enrollment databases, that this data was really, really hard to get. So we're only finding about out about these effects, you know, more than a decade after some of them happened. I mean, you were talking about tone, but I, I, I think it's important to understand like what kind of tone we're talking about here. Because I, I do also think there's a there's a disjoint in like if you're not an immigrant or tied to immigrant communities – I think there's a lot of like white liberal nostalgia for the Bush administration, which like on a level of overt tone was like very different on immigration than Trump and a certain like lack of comprehension as to like why Latino populations are not experiencing the kind of acute anti-Trump backlash that you see among professional women. But I think stories like this help explain – why that is, right? That like during the two terms of Bush and the first term of Obama, the like official tone from the White House was like way nicer to immigrants. But like the actual policymaking on the ground, and I think you're right. I mean, I do think it is a tone question, but like it's a locally being set, right? I mean, it's like the message comes out that like, look, the city government is like working hand in glove with La Migra to make sure we're rousting out the illegals. And that makes people be like, I maybe shouldn't send my kid to school, even if he's a U.S. citizen, because like school is a government agency. They can find out things about your parents Mm -hmm. at school, right? And so it's like when the mayor is like working hard on this, it's like, you know, people, people get worried. But that was happening below the radar of people who are not personally invested in immigration policy, right? And so you sort of don't see these these big changes that that swept through. Again, there's not a lot of recognition among Democrats of how much uh, the Obama administration stepped up uh, the pace of deportations during its first term in a kind of ultimately failed play to you know, gain legislative support. And 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 I think about all of this because ever since Trump won the election, there's been this – I mean, there's been like resistance movement, but there's also been this sort of boom market in like might makes right thinking about politics. Um, Hillary Clinton said the rise of populism shows that Europe needs to get immigration under control. John Judas has this book about how like the left needs to handle the the populist backlash more seriously. And it's easy to forget that like pre-Trump, like this is what establishment politicians were doing, right? It was like trying to throw bones to restrictionists to 
calm people down and build support for what they hope for to be this like amnesty policy and like I don't know, man. Like, I mean, politics is politics, and I guess you got to do what you got to do. But like, this is three hundred thousand elementary school students. Well, now I who think dropped like, out, and because they dropped out, they're now they would be dreamers today had they graduated high school. But like, they're not, and so now they go on some like bad immigrants list of you know dropouts. If you're thinking the point of immigration enforcement is to like improve the labor market outcomes for less skilled Americans, like this makes that much worse. Right? Well, and you like, wonder like crime. what it looks like now where the tone has shifted even more, right? right. Like, so we're already talking about a really significant magnitude when the tone, like you're saying, was very different. Now that you have like the president, you know, out there like saying – Yeah, running things, around. We're, like, we're liberating town. Yeah, like you – I wonder what this data would look like if we looked at the data and we see some of it like in the SNAP study. But – Yeah, like, if we can ever we don't, find school enrollment data. We don't know, you know, I don't know. Maybe these authors have this information and they'll publish something soon. Right. But like it would not surprise me if you saw an even greater magnitude of this effect happening right now, but we don't know about it because there's a huge data lag and the data is really hard to get. Right, but it's like what of, of the things that bother people about immigration, right? Like what of them is made – like, you know, they're using too much welfare. They're committing crimes. They're hurting our labor market outcomes. Like getting kids to drop out of elementary school is going to make those things – Worse, well, right? that's what I appreciated about this study was you could see the argument like, well, if these families who, you know, quote unquote, maybe shouldn't be here, if they if they pull out of the schools, well, that's going to lead to smaller class sizes. It might just sort of improve the socioeconomic standing of the school. And so that would be to the benefit, you know, if if this is the way you think, that would be to the benefit of the, the kids who are supposed to be here. But what these researchers found is actually class sizes did not get any smaller. The socioeconomic, you know, status of the school population was more or less the same. And so there was, there was I appreciated that they attempted to look for those right. supposed benefits and yet they didn't find them. I mean, I guess they saved some money by not hiring as many teachers. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, but I mean, again, it's like... But then it's offset by the labor market outcomes. Well, and you know, I mean, there's, so there's going to be stories, right? I mean, look, there's going to be somewhere in the Trump immigrant crime hotline, right? Like you can never draw like precise lines between these things. But like you know that like if somebody leaves elementary school, like their labor market outcomes as a teenager and a 20-something are like not going to be great. And a person like that is much more likely to end up involved in illegal activity that or like, need federal assistance. Yeah, or yeah. need assistance, right? Than like somebody who went to school and did something normal. But it's like when they're kids, they're very sympathetic, right? Like if you wrote a story in the newspaper about like a sixth grader whose mom is keeping him home from school, everyone would be like, oh, what a sad story. You read a story about a 26-year-old who's on welfare and, you know, hasn't held a steady job in her whole life. People are gonna be like, well, she's part of the problem. But like that's maybe because she didn't finish school because Right. I don't know, man. This made me mad. <laughs> well, you can um, express your anger on the in a productive way in the Weeds Facebook group. Absolutely. Vent your rage in Weeds Facebook group. Uh, send us email at weeds at vox.com. I want to thank Dylan Scott for uh, joining us today and helping to break all this stuff down. And of course, as always, our producer, Griffin Tanner. The Weeds will be back on Friday. In U.S. working forests, or 
forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.